Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with mostly Israeli practitioners and experts in the arts of military affairs, diplomacy, intelligence, law enforcement, and governance. And our guest today is our very own Dr. Eran Lerman. Welcome. I almost feel at home. A retired Colonel with the Israeli Defense Forces. And because we hear your views on the issues of the day and of history uh, quite frequently, let's concentrate uh, today on your very personal road. And when one, especially in countries uh, with little military activity, hears of an army colonel one may have uh, a mental picture of a hard-charging cavalry leader, um, Patton-like, or one of the Israeli war heroes of yesteryear, even though now it's a lot of brain power, cyber, and the like. So it's very interesting to know what's a nice boy like you was doing in a place like this. How did you come uh, through the ranks uh, as an academic and officer? And um, we already uh, know, it's a spoiler, but nevertheless, that uh, you had uh, careers in at least three of Israel's important government agencies, the Directorate of Military Intelligence. About, and then in the National Security Service. Uh, and I did serve in a, a, a Jewish organization with three letters to its name, but not the IDF, okay. the AJC. Okay, so let's keep, uh, because I, I do remember that at one time there was an intergovernmental oh, uh, yes. I, uh, I brainstorming did with the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in which you participated, but not as a foreign service officer. I was never a foreign service officer, but I was very much involved in Israeli diplomacy in my own way. So I stand corrected, at least partly. What? So how, how does it all starts really in a deep sense. I was a, a high school student actually in the uh, mathematics, physics, chemistry, that direction. Uh, Where? At the high, uh, one of the best high schools in the country, in the Reali School in Haifa, a pretty well-known place with a strong, uh, let's say, uh, service um, uh, attitude or, or inculcated in, our, in, in the students. Um, also with a prep, with a preparatory academy for officers. Uh, yeah, as part of our, our classes. But uh, I, I came through the, 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 the regular um, course, and 
The war of 73 caught me on the last year of high school and left a very deep mark. Um, my school took the, the graduates, not in the year above me, but two years above me, took a terrible toll. And I, I saw our teachers walking around uh, half in days, uh, thinking of, of the young people they knew. There was a disproportionate number of casualties among the junior officers, platoon leaders, and company commanders who were your senior by a couple of years. Yes, and, it, and, and the, the school was always famous in a certain way for, for its very long list of losses in the service of the country. And very Inclu- including the founding uh, director or headmaster of the school, uh, Mr. Biram, who was the son in, uh, in, in the a, Air Force. No, in a, in a mine, uh, mine exploded under the, his son's jeep, I think, in, uh, I shortly after 67. The, if I remember right. But uh, qu- very quickly afterwards, uh, the, the full scale of the intelligence failure, the intelligence challenge of 73, uh, came into focus in the debate. And, and I felt increasingly like... Uh, Maybe I, th- this is where I should go. And so I went and had my Arabic tested and did very, very poorly. I, uh, we took some Arabic in the, fifth, in the uh, seventh and eighth grade and, and then stopped. And there was very little left of it. So I actually took the break uh, after, after the end of high school, after the matriculation exams, and, and bone uh, on Arabic, tested again, and this time I did quite well and ended up serving uh, for a, a while in Israel's uh, famous, now famous collection agency, uh, uh, Signal Intelligence Collection Agency, 8200. Nowadays, uh, uh, instructors would come into a school and say, I come from 8200 to persuade uh, you kids to learn Arabic or, or, or cyber, cyber trade or whatever. At the time, I couldn't even tell my parents what I was doing. <laughs> Um, but I ended up doing a couple of, uh, taking a couple of positions there, and then... Um, so that, that means that uh, the imaginary portrait on the wall next to you was of an Arab leader, commander, head of state, rather than of a U.S. president or um, a Soviet uh, Secretary General of the Communist Party. At, at that stage, uh, I was thinking about, uh, let's say, uh, uh, brigade commanders uh, level on the other side to whom I had to listen. And then, and then uh, increasingly, my scope of interest broadened. I'm not going to go into specific details of what I did when. But at one point, the IDF, uh, again, under the deep impression of what happened in 73, uh, decided that it needs more... Uh, people with a ground, academic grounding in Arab affairs, people who would go and study stop, Arab, more, stop more than Middle Eastern studies. But please stop there. As you mentioned, uh, 8200 and other uh, units of the intelligence corps um, were tasked with collection. The intelligence failure of 1973 had to do with assessments, with research. And the question always is, because it's a cycle, how much assessment can you bring into the 
very first initial stage of production when you collect, do you send the raw material to the back office and from there to the head office? Or do you shape it through whatever knowledge you already have? Very much the second, and that has been my conclusion. Uh, years later, I actually was in charge of uh, Egyptian affairs, or, uh, and I was looking at the whole file from uh, 73. And I saw that quite often, even on things that uh, did not by text or by content relate to uh, exercise activity, the, uh, the collection agency already tagged them as part of what they were told to look for, which was, which was an exercise. In other words, the eyes do not see everything and the ears cannot hear everything. And if we fed everything into, uh, in, into the uh, research uh, functions or the analysis uh, uh, divisions of any intelligence service, they, they would not be able to handle it. The collection agencies, whether uh, it is the uh, human intelligence tasking that asks specific questions, and the, uh, the listeners who are looking for specific signals are very much driven by what we call the uh, um, marking of important information, tziach, that's by tasking. Task, in other words, uh, the tasking done by, from within based on the priorities uh, as outlined by the analysis. Uh, divisions and sometimes by the higher level, by, by the decision makers, by the politicians and, and, and the top military echelon. And so uh, uh, it is quite rare, uh, I'm afraid, for a collection agency to stumble on something that they were not asked to So look for instance, for. In, in the um, case you, you mentioned, if you are told this is an exercise the Egyptian army is only exercising its ability to cross the Suez Canal, and you are not asked an open question. What do you see? Could it be something else, deception, or uh, some hidden motive? Then your answer would follow the question. So in order to avoid this uh, uh, structural failure, two things were done over the years. One is to create a list of warning signals which trigger an automatic automatically this kind of pressure you can you can st still think it's an exercise but you have to mark this as a warning signal and if there are more of these coming up you have to review your because automatically the, have to review your assessment because the capabilities um, which uh, are already being there on the other side could be irreversible if you decide, well, it's, it's real, it's not an exercise, it would be too late for you. True enough. And at the end of the day, of course, there's always the political analysis. Why should they want to do something at this time? And sometimes it's based on knowledge, sometimes it has to be based on an attempt to understand the human being, the decision-making maker on the other side. Intuition. In, intuition, it's more than, in, well, what is intuition? Intuition is another way of describing the overall impact of a long experience doing certain things. 
I'm always reminded of, of uh, my com former commander, Amos Gilad, figuring out that Assad would not, is not looking for a war in 96, and therefore uh, leading uh, uh, the, the inquiry that uh, exposed some of the information that came in as being actually bogus. But uh, so, yes, intuition. But what is this intuition? It is having read and uh, about and watched Assad in, in, through a whole variety of sources however, over years and years and getting to know at the level that good friends however, know each other. However, we all remember uh, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak and uh, Jordan's King Hussein saying Saddam Hussein will not invade Kuwait. We know him. We are his fellow Arab rulers. Trust us. He's not going to do it. Yeah, it, you cannot entirely rely on this. And you can also not, you cannot entirely rely on, on the assumption that collection will be there. Uh, you need to collate the two elements. So the, you went but, from... But another element yeah. that has been brought in was the uh, uh, institutionalized um, control via the devil's advocate division which looks at the possibility that we are all wrong, and also the right given to any, any intelligence officer who thinks that his commanders are off track to actually write and say so uh, all the way up. But it is very rare now that we have uh, um, almost 50 years of experience since 1974, very rare that the advocates were right and the devil was there. Um, in some cases, yes, I can think of certain uh, specific cases regarding Lebanon, Syrian policy, and so on. But yes, by, by and large, the uh, the record, despite the '73 catastrophe, and I don't have any other word for it, uh, by and large, the Israeli uh, record on, on analysis has been quite solid. So you went on from being a, Wait, ca a captain, or, or no? Some... What happened is uh, they came to me. While I was a um, regular serviceman in, in collection and said, would you like to take off three years um, and go and study Middle Eastern studies in the middle of your military service, come back, uh, we'll send you to officer's training then. They actually literally took me off the bus to officer's training uh, for my unit and uh, made me this offer. There seems to be a catch there that you should... Uh, sign on for a very long service. Not very long, but uh, I was already uh, I was already signed on. I've already voluntarily signed on, so that wasn't that much. Even as an NCO before you Even became as an, NCO, an officer, yes, indeed. And then um, and then something really strange happened towards the end of my undergraduate degree. I decided that I want to go all the way, and uh, all the way meant a PhD abroad. It took a battle with the bureaucracy. I'm not going to go into details. It was bloody, and it involved uh, doing the Israeli thing, which is, you know, pulling connections, and at, uh, not at anybody's expense, simply to break the, the, the resistance of the bureaucracy to such a daring idea. And off I went uh, to uh, the London School of Economics and wrote a PhD under the guidance of Eli Kaduri and came back to officers' training <laughs> at the age of 25 with a PhD, and finally found my place in the, the uh, analysis side, uh, in the research and analysis Doing division. Uh, first in international affairs, uh, quite by accident, but of course, I, 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 my PhD was British policy in Egypt. So I assumed I would end up doing Egypt, I ended up doing other things. And there I rose uh, 
steadily to the rank of captain. I, uh, I was a section head, left service mid, again. Mid-1980s? Uh, Mid-1980s, late 1980s. And, and, uh, and I left the service. I was quite convinced that I'm going to go to academic life and have a teaching career at Haifa University where I was in, uh, accepted, given a prestigious uh, grant by the government. And within a year, I was back. Um, uh, Pushed or pulled? Pulled. Um, the, one of the crucial phone calls came the day that Bush, 41, invaded Panama. And that was... 1989. Yes, um, uh, just cause. And I'm saying to myself, this is not the Cold War anymore. This is about other things. The world is changing. The Soviet Union is falling apart. Uh, the Berlin Wall uh, was, was tottering. Uh, and and the, the whole thing is changing in front of my eye. I want to be back in. Why? And in order to see it firsthand? In order to see it firsthand and see if I can uh, be of use for and the government became, of Israel too. But, and I ended up heading But you became this. addicted to intelligence. Well, I've seen people go into uh, uh, you, you couldn't stay sober. without without uh, the stuff, but uh, this was more. To, there was more to it than that. I, I had a sense. Uh, people started calling the new world order. Uh, I had a sense of something very dramatic unfolding in front of present at the creation. And, and, and so uh, that, that was a ni- his nice way of uh, quoting this Portuguese uh, monarch. I would have given the good Lord a few tips. So I wasn't going to give the good Lord a f- tips, but I, was, I thought maybe I could give my government a few tips. And, and I ended up being in charge of understanding the international side of the 91 war. And uh, we were being asked a question, never asked, of an Israeli intelligence officer before. Will the Americans or will the alliance start the war? What Saddam did was already known. By the time I came, Kuwait was under Iraqi occupation. And there was this uh, Jim Baker, Tarek Aziz meeting and a week before hostilities oh, yes. were supposed oh, to yes. start. And I, my prediction was quite uh, unequivocally that Bush would go to war. And therefore, Israel should be prepared, civilian yes, uh, population. And, and that, uh, so that was not my department to assess how Saddam would react. But uh, This I, was derived from it. But this was derived from it. And interestingly, uh, I use this always as an example. When, when did I realize that this is irreversible? Um, we sometimes talk about hermeneutics as, uh, as the core of the art of history and, and also of intelligence, understanding another person through his text. So sometimes the text is revealed because we have a listening device under his table, and sometimes the text is an open speech. This time it was Bush speaking at uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. Line in the sand. Uh, no, and he starts by quoting from a film. Now, that's more Reagan than Bush. Right. And it took me a while to realize uh, which film it was. And, even, and then I was even more <laughs> amazed because this is an anti, uh, a hysterically anti-CIA film that came out when he was the head of the CIA, uh, Three Days of the Condor. In sure. which poor Robert, Robert Redford. Redford, poor Robert Redford, he has to kidnap Faye Dunaway. You know, your heart goes out. To Latin him. America. And, and some kind of no dastardly intention to intervene in the Middle East. I mean, the whole thing shot through his ironies. And, and Bush describes the, the scene from the 
a scene from the film in which this elderly guy is being asked if he, he misses the action, talking about the boats in, in the uh, Adriatic helping Tito or something. And he kind of takes off his glasses and he says, uh, no, but I miss the certainty. And Bush was saying this, and it was like a revelation. He was missing the certainty. For him, what Saddam did and what he was about to do was not about oil or money or American interests. It was about redeeming America to the uh, days of his youth. He's speaking at Pearl Harbor. He was a fighter pilot. A naval, a naval, a naval aviator. aviator uh, the youngest and, and among the bravest in He's world. He's plane shot. He was in uh, a life raft uh, in the came, Pacific. He survived. Uh, one cynical American uh, uh, senator once said he was a, you know, uh, the first real war hero elected president. And you'll, you'll understand the reference here. In any case, uh, he's looking to his youth where there were two certainties. One, we, were, we are right. Two, we're going to win. Then one was lost in Korea because it was a bloody draw. And then the second was lost in Vietnam where American moral certainty was ground to dust. And here he is in a position to redeem both with the certainty of victory. And this overcame the qualms of Colin Powell. So you, mu you must be steeped in culture and in popular culture in order to understand that. Well, you have to. Certainly, if you are, you have to, you are looking at uh, people at the highest level who make their own decisions. This is an American president. Uh, his cabinet can vote as they wish, and he still makes decisions. So let's, let's jump ahead in the short time that we still have from captain or major to colonel. And then why did you believe that uh, there was no um, more promotions for you in well, military intelligence because they take it from, from other uh, ladders of promotion? Look, I frankly thought, first of all, I, I, I felt I was being offered something of, of great significance. I was, significance. I was offered to be the head of Middle East and Israel and Middle East for the American Jewish Committee, an organization which I highly value. I spent eight years there, which were very fruitful and very significant for me. But beyond that, um, I felt it is a legitimate position of the IDF. If you don't make brigadier general, don't uh, make uh, a star rank if you do not have not been in combat, or at least in, in a combat unit or combat uh, service. And I've been in intelligence all my life. I thought uh, I was looking at others who have served. I know that there are, there are people who made uh, but, but who made the grade. I, I felt that it was a legitimate as, as you, as you uh, know, limitation. As you know from your personal history and otherwise, once the planning division was created as a, a two-star position uh, after the Yom Kippur War, uh, many people migrated from intelligence to planning, including the um, present ambassador in Washington and others. <laughs> indeed, and, and um, uh, heading the uh, strategy department within the division would bring with it a brigadier general rank. I assumed that had I stayed around, this, would, this could have happened. But I, was, I didn't look back. Um, I um, actually signed with AJC in New York. In the Israeli? On the, on the day after 9-11. 
really. But and I in- felt that uh, contributing in a significant way to the bolstering of the Israeli-American relationship, which I've always held in, in very high by that, regard, by that, is a worthy cause. By that time, you were 46? 45, yes, I was 45. Could and, fully retire. Right, and, and uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces, you can retire by 40 or 42. It changes, but at that time, in order to draw full retirement, this was the right or ripe age. And, and since I have a PhD, I retired uh, with the uh, pay rank of a brigadier general. So uh, there was not, they, they, they were, these were personal considerations of all sorts, but I also saw the American-Israeli relationship as a main mission. But you also saw the Israeli defense establishment and the intelligence branch from the outside in the national security staff. Um, We don't have time, but in some very brief statements, what is the state of play of Israeli intergovernmental staff work? Much better than it was um, when I came. Because you left. Ah, maybe. <laughs> because I, ho- I hope I left a legacy. Um, the National Security Council was once a, a, a kind of glorified think tank way out in the, in the woods. Exile. Sort of. Far from the core of power. I have to give credit. And to, out of Jerusalem, too. Yes. And I have away. to give... Uh, one, one of the reasons I'm now in a, in a think tank in Jerusalem, the JISS, is because we, the core of decision-making has shifted to Jerusalem. And I have to give credit to Uzi Arad for all his uh, uh, other talents that he understood this location. Okay? He moved the NSC t- to the prim- at the prim- to be at the Prime Minister's elbow. From Herzliya, which is, which is a very nice rural place, but uh, out yes. of the loop. Uh, from Ramat Sharon, actually. Not but sure. it doesn't matter. It, it, right next to the Prime Minister and truly coordinate. And the, the reason is that Israel is no longer just the sum of its military parts. Uh, in a country that exports $160 billion a year, whose economy is GDP per capita richer than Germany, I'm quoting the economist, not my own imagination, and in which um, a whole variety of factors have to be brought in, foreign policy, economic policy, military, intelligence, all, uh, all of these have to be integrated into one for the decision maker. The role of the NSC now is far more important than it was 15 Lastly, years ago. Lastly, the former heads of the NSC, and they, of course, also you were dual-headed as the national security advisors to the prime ministers, were professionals former Mossad directors or deputy directors, uh, generals. The current one is a politician. But a politician with a very long pedigree uh, and doing things uh, that included uh, regional relations. And uh, I think he's doing a remarkable job. Uh, From all I know, from all I hear, in a very balanced and sophisticated way. And one thing he has that nobody can take away from him is a sense of humor, and you need it. In this job. In this job, too. Yes. <laughs> um, and this is uh, former minister Tzachi Anegbi, who is uh, one of Netanyahu's confidants. True enough. Retired colonel, Dr. Eran Lerman, thank you very much for a very informative and somewhat humorous conversation. Thank you. This has been Watchmen Talk from TV7 News in Jerusalem. We will be back with another Watchmen soon.
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.